Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. I'm normally joined by my partner in crime, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, but Elliot is traveling uh, this week. But I'm very glad to have as uh, our very special guest on Shield of the Republic, Jonathan Chanzer, the Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies. Uh, Jonathan has an enormous background uh, in uh, Middle East and uh, terrorism issues. He has a BA from Emory University, got an MA at Hebrew University, his doctorate from King's College in London, and also studied Arabic at American University in Cairo. He's been a terrorism finance analyst at the Treasury Department, and the author is is the author of three books very relevant to the topic uh, today of the war in Gaza. He has written State of Failure, Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas, and the unraveling of the Palestinian state. He's written Hamas versus Fatah, the struggle for Palestine, and most recently, Gaza Conflict 2021, which I highly commend uh, to readers. You can find all of them available at Amazon. Jonathan, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Thanks, Eric. Great to be with you. So um, one of the things that you do in your book on on the conflict uh, two years ago in 2021, and I guess it's worth recalling for our listeners that uh, we've had several rounds of fighting between Israel and Hamas, as you document in the book. Uh, one round in 2008-2009, Operation Cast Lead, and then successor rounds in 2012-2014, uh, and then, of course, in 2021. One of the things you talk about in the book uh, is that you cannot look at this fight between uh, Israel and Hamas between the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, uh, who are now operating not just in the north of Gaza, but as of today in the south as well, purely in the context of Gaza, but you have to see it in a broader sort of regional context. Talk a little bit about that and, and explain what you mean by the larger context. Sure. Um, well, I think I would probably look at it through two important lenses, at least to start with. Uh, the first and most important is through the lens of Iran. The Islamic Republic of Iran has been a sponsor. Uh, they are the purveyor of weapons. They're the ones who provide the training. Uh, and they provide a lot of the guidance that Hamas has received over the years. A lot of that bad advice that has left uh, Gaza in rubble time and again has actually been the result of Iran urging and goading the uh, Hamas terrorist organization to engage in war with the Israelis. This is part of uh, what has been widely described as the ring of fire strategy that uh, Iran has devised in the region. The goal is to surround Israel with various proxies that can fire thousands of rockets into Israel. So we see the capabilities of Hamas in Gaza, or what were their capabilities. We see uh, Hezbollah 
which has roughly 10 times the number of rockets, as well as a lot more sophisticated ordnance uh, that it can fire at Israel. We see Shiite militias that are operating in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and the Houthis in Yemen, of course, have been firing rockets at Israel from longer distances. All of these groups are aligned, funded, trained, armed by Iran. And the Islamic Republic, I would say it's safe to say, is fighting Israel to the last Palestinian, to the last Lebanese, to the last Yemeni, to the last Syrian and the last Iraqi. They are fighting Israel by proxy so they don't have to. The regime stays comfortable and safe within their own borders while war rages halfway across the region. And so this is, I think, an important lens with which we must view the conflict. A lot of people would like to make this about it's Palestinians and Israelis. It's about social justice. It's about a piece of real estate that belongs to two people. I think, sure, you could look at it that way. But if you can't understand the way in which Iran has been stoking this now for a decade and a half, two decades now, then you're missing a big piece of the puzzle. But the second lens may be just important, just as important, and that is that there is a domestic battle that is taking place within Palestinian politics between the Hamas faction and the Fatah faction, which is the ruling party of the Palestinian Authority. These two factions have been battling one another since the late 1980s, early 1990s. Hamas views itself as the vanguard of the Palestinian resistance, and the Fatah faction sees itself as the internationally recognized body that uh, governs the Palestinian Authority. They uh, have actually gone to war with one another in 2007, and I wrote about this in my book, Hamas versus Fatah, The Struggle for Palestine. These two factions have actually been in a hot war in a civil war with one another, it ultimately ended in a split of the Palestinian territories, right? Gaza is now controlled by Hamas. We could call it Hamasistan, if you will. Uh, the West Bank is controlled by Fatah. They uh, have two separate governments, two separate economies, two separate bureaucracies. It's one of those things where, you know, over the years, people continue to talk about the importance of the two-state solution. And I always say, aren't we really talking about a three-state solution here? Because there are already two Palestinian states. And that explains why the Gaza Strip is at war today and the West Bank is not. And this divide, I think, really does inform quite a bit of what's going on here as well. There is also, uh, I think, one other dimension, of course, which is uh, something you and I have talked about a lot, which is the role of uh, not the uh, Shia international community, but the Sunni international community in the form of Turkey and Qatar, which has been uh, a major financier and in the case of Turkey, a, a, a major point of uh, repose, as it were, for exiled uh, Hamas leaders and moral support uh, for Hamas, which we've seen in spades uh, these past few weeks in the statements that President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has made. Would you want to talk about that uh, element of it? The gutteries strike me as sort of your classic arsonist fireman, you know, um, routine, which is they 
fund Hamas, uh, and then when conflict breaks out, they uh, come in and and um, you know uh, pose as the uh, arbiters and uh, mediators of the conflict, and now in this case, hostage negotiators. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you know when we look at both of these countries, and they are of course both cut from the same cloth. These are Muslim Brotherhood aligned nations uh, that see themselves as the protectors and promoters of uh, political Islam uh, in the Sunni world, that is. Um, Their role as Hamas sponsors is actually born out of the last major hostage crisis. Uh, Here I'm referring to the Gilad Shalit hostage crisis. This is uh, an Israeli soldier who was taken by Hamas in 2006, and he was held until 2011, when the Israelis traded 1,000 Hamas prisoners for this one individual. Included in that, by the way, was Yahya Sinwar, the head of the Hamas organization in Gaza, who is largely seen as the architect behind the 10-7 slaughter. in there also were a handful of other Hamas fighters, uh, convicted Hamas fighters, who were then deported to two countries in particular, Qatar and Turkey. Uh, I, can, I can address the Turks first. They're actually a little bit easier to analyze because, quite frankly, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's approach to uh, Hamas has been a rather blunt one. He doesn't try to be arsonist and firefighter. He's basically fine being an arsonist. Um, He has allowed uh, Istanbul to be the uh, home of Hamas in Turkey. There are somewhere between a dozen and two dozen convicted uh, Hamas terrorists that have been operating there. Among the more famous of them is a guy by the name of Salah al-Arori. Arori made headlines, you may recall, Eric, in 2014, when he got up in front of a large crowd in Istanbul, which included the deputy prime minister of Turkey at the time, and he announced after a 51-day knockdown, drag-out battle between Hamas and Israel, that he was responsible for the precipitating event that sparked that war. I'm talking here about the triple homicide of three teens in the West Bank. That was ultimately what led the Israelis to actually put boots on the ground in Gaza. That's the last time we saw that. Um, And Arori has since gone on to, I mean, it's amazing what he's done out of Turkey. He's actually helped build a rocket arsenal for Hamas in Lebanon. Um, He was, I believe, the first uh, Hamas figure to come out and and claim responsibility for the kidnapping of 240 plus people on the 10-7 massacre. So the Turks have been... um, home to a lot of pretty nasty people uh, associated with Hamas over the years. Um, The Mossad has tried to get them in a few cases, and uh, the uh, MIT has stopped them in some cases. It's been an ongoing cat and mouse game. Uh, But the Israelis, you know, at one point hoped that Erdogan would get better, that he would moderate. He hasn't, and I think he's really shown his true colors here during the uh, the ongoing war here uh, in Gaza. The Qataris are a little different in the sense that they have tried to convince the United States and perhaps others around the world that they can help. 
And that's the reason that they say they are sponsors of Hamas. So they, too, have a headquarters in Doha. It's right down the street from the Aludeid uh, Kayak, the Combined Air Operations Center. That's the CENTCOM Air Force Base that we, we uh, have. It's uh, where CENTCOM has its forward headquarters. That's right. And that's where most of the um, bombing runs against ISIS and Al Qaeda have taken place over the years. That is our that is the tip of the spear for us. And so it's a bit weird to have, you know, groups like Hamas down the street. But of course, we also know that the Taliban is down the street. We know that Al Qaeda uh, financiers and ISIS financiers run around in, in Qatar. This is their brand. Uh, that they've developed over the years, that they want to be seen as an asset to work with some of these unsavory characters. And over the years, they have convinced not just the United States, but the Israelis, that if they would just be able to pay the salaries of the Hamas government, and if they would just be able to transfer additional humanitarian assistance or even just cash, that this would ultimately lead to calm uh, on the Gaza-Israel border. And, but I think, as you noted, Eric, there have been five rounds of war. Um, uh, the Qataris have not been able to stop Hamas once uh, in all of this. They may have been able to curtail the fighting by you know, a period of days, but usually these battles have just played out the way one would expect, where the Israelis are provoked and they respond with overwhelming force and Hamas ultimately relents. Um, in this case, they have emerged as the hostage negotiators. The Israelis, I think, were happy to use their offices for the short time that they did, for seven or eight days. After the Israelis were able to get out 100 or so of their hostages, I think the Israelis made it clear that they were no longer interested in using the good offices of the Qataris. They started actually bombing um, buildings that had Hamas infrastructure in them that the Qataris had built. I will actually be very interested to find the Israelis actually also captured what was considered to be the Qatari embassy near the Shifa hospital complex, which has been widely identified as the Hamas command center. It is likely that the Israelis have uncovered documents that may reveal the depth to which the Qataris were helping Hamas not just meet the salary needs of the bureaucracy, but I believe we'll probably see some documents pointing to military and terrorist cooperation. So that will be interesting to see as this war drags on. So that's a pretty good summary, I would say, of the you know broader kind of regional picture here. We've, we've talked about you know the Iranian, the internal Palestinian dynamic, and now the Turks and and Qatar. There is another internal dynamic. Uh, which you address in in your book on the 2021 Gaza war, which is a little different this time around. So one of the things that was, I think for many Israelis, shocking in 2021 um, was the fact that for the first time really in these various go-rounds with Hamas, there there was substantial unrest, not in just in the West Bank, where occasionally that'll happen when there's something going on with Hamas, but among Israeli Arabs in uh, inside the the Green Line, as it were, inside the uh, uh, state of Israel, uh, with Israeli citizens, these are people who are Israeli citizens. And this time around, the reaction has been quite quite different. 
some of which may have to do with the fact that uh, some Bedouin and some Israeli Arabs were actually killed on October 7th. But it does seem that the Israeli Arab population is as traumatized as the Jewish population of Israel by what they saw happen on, on October 7th. You talk a little bit about the contrast, uh, John, between 2021 and today with the Israeli Arabs? Oh, absolutely. It's amazing what uh, two years difference can make here. It's been light and it's been night and day. Um, look, what happened in 2021 was undeniably a shock to Israelis. And, and it was really disheartening uh, to hear the way that Israelis talked about the situation after uh, that 2021 war, because you heard some Israelis, mostly you know, right wing, usual suspects, uh, on the political spectrum, but they were talking about Israeli Arabs as a fifth column. And, and that, of course, is just terrible news when you think about the way in which uh, Israel has worked so hard over the years to integrate its Arab population. Um, you know, they are entitled to the same rights as other Israelis. They serve on the Supreme Court. They serve in the Knesset. They serve as judges. Um, uh, they serve as, uh, you know, their doctors, uh, their lawyers, their pillars of society. Now, it doesn't mean that everything's perfect. You know, every minority in just about every country I've ever been to still has their grievances. But one always had the sense that things were okay, at least okay, if not good. Um, and then during this last round of conflict in 2021, we saw them coming out into the streets in these mixed towns, um, like in Lod and in Beersheba and in Jerusalem itself and other places where they were actually taking to the streets and engaging in violence and in some cases, you know, trying to attack Israelis. Um, and so I think the Israeli security establishment spent uh, the last two years really trying to figure out what happened. I think there were some arrests. Um, but I also think that there was a lot of dialogue and a lot of attempts to integrate more. In fact, during the last uh, government under uh, Naftali Bennett, we saw the inclusion of Arab parties for the first time in a coalition. And I think that there was something truly transformational about, about that decision. Naftali Bennett, I think at some point down the line, even though he was only prime minister for a year, he will get credit for a lot of interesting things that, uh, that transpired during his time in office. And this was one of them. Um, and Mansour Abbas, the leader of this, uh, of this Arab party, has actually emerged in this most recent round as something of a hero. I mean, he has come out and unequivocally condemned what happened on 10-7. And, uh, and I think has uh, really, uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a source of inspiration for a number of Israelis who were clearly disheartened by what happened on 10-7 and shocked, and they were wondering about the future of the country. So I think in that sense, things are looking pretty good. Um, there is, of course, a difference between the war of 2021 and the war of 2023, the 2021 war focused, I don't know if it was grounded in reality, but at least the narrative was focused on Jerusalem. And so there was a religious component to the last war where Muslims thought they were fighting for the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They were fighting for their rights to take part in you know, religious uh, ceremonies in, you know, in the third holiest site in Islam. This, I think, may have sparked some of the heat 
that we saw coming out of the Arab sector, as they call it in, in Israel. This most recent round was completely 100% provoked by bloodlust on the part of Hamas. And I think that the Arab Israelis just don't have the stomach for that. And of course, for anyone who has seen the kinds of visuals that came out of that day on 10-7, it's not hard to be disgusted. Speaking of the visuals, John, um, you, you talk a little bit in the book about the kind of the methodology that you uh, used to uh, you know, put it together. You were writing a lot in real time about the war uh, in 2021 for um, for FDD and for you know variety of of news uh, uh, and uh, op ed outlets. But in the modern age, it's possible to sort of follow these kinds of conflicts in real time. Uh, you know, using social media and open source uh, intelligence. And you, of course, have been a uh, you know, an intelligence analyst as a terrorism finance analyst at, at the Treasury Department. And I assume you're doing the same thing now. Talk a little bit about what it's like to, you know, be a consumer. Uh, I know it's it sort of obviously in, in, impedes your sleep cycle since you're up, you know, since we're, you know, big time difference between Israel and here. So to watch the things in real time on Israeli television and regional media uh, sort of does cut into your your sleep a little bit. But talk a little bit about what it's like to monitor all this and how have you seen things play out in ways that you think are either improperly reflected or inadequately reflected in the U.S. media? Uh, maybe I'll just start by just going through kind of what, what the day looks like um, when, when these wars break out. Um, the work-life balance is not great. Um, I'll, I'll seed that and my, my wife will be the first one to foot stomp that usually on my foot when, when we talk about the, the kinds of time that, that is required to go into monitoring all of this. But, um, you know, you can watch um, four Israeli news channels in real time on Apple TV. By the way, I, I don't have Apple stock, so I'm not trying to promote any of their products. Um, but, you know, you can watch Channel 11, which is sort of their PBS. You can watch Channel 12, which is sort of their CNN Channel 13, which is, I don't know, it's kind of no man's land. It, it seems kind of non-aligned. And then Channel 14 is the Fox News of Israel. And so you can watch all of those in real time around the clock, which I often do. Um, and it helps to speak the language. I learned Hebrew when I got my master's degree. And so I'm able to track their news. What's amazing about their news is that you know you're watching it in real time and it usually takes a good half hour or 45 minutes for these headlines to reach America because the reporters from the wire services are not going to run with something right away out of the Israeli press until they're able to chase down a second source and that may take a while and meanwhile you know I've already seen this news that comes out an hour later and I find it very frustrating that there is not sort of a regular translation service for Americans that want to stay up on this stuff because it's, you know, our stuff is slow and it's late and it's often watered down. And I, I think we see our politics creep into some of this. The language gets weird. Um, you know, the inability to seed, um, you know, that one side side has carried out an atrocity, for example, is sometimes hard for our media to, uh, you know, to, to admit. So that's part of what I do on a regular basis. But then there's 
uh, watching Arabic media. So I'm able to watch uh, Al Arabiya uh, and Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera, of course, is controlled and owned by the Qataris. And that is often vitriolic. Um, but it's important to see the kinds of messaging that they're putting out into Arabic and the way in which that they are really trying to incite against the Israelis. They're trying to incite against the United States. They want their audience to believe that there's some kind of wanton slaughter that is going on in Gaza. And we've seen this now five different times. It's really a pattern. Al-Arabiya is interesting because as the Saudis and the Emiratis and others have drawn closer to Israel, the coverage has gotten more muted, which I think is a very positive thing. Um, they're not out to vilify the Israelis 24-7. They will still be critical, but they are, I think, increasingly trying to demonstrate something more of a balance. And I think it's a more moderate content to watch. Um, and then, you know, the other screens to watch are, of course, our media. So I get to see the politicized coverage that we see in MSNBC, which is a left-wing brand, and Fox News, which is a right-wing brand, and looking at how all of that plays out and the kinds of guests that they bring on. And remarkably, um, you know, we see people who don't really know much about the conflict being brought on as guests in a lot of these channels, which is also very frustrating. Um, and then there's the real-time analysis that's happening nonstop um, on Twitter, or sorry, now we're calling it X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, where you can watch, you know, sort of hot takes from analysts and from journalists. And, you know, what's what's so important for me is to try to watch all of that at once. So I could at least attempt to um, convey what's happening in the region and to balance that with some of the, the mistakes that are happening uh, in our uh, legacy media, so to speak, and in the real-time content that is being produced that often goes viral before anyone's even had a chance to check it. So it is really a lot uh, of information to track, but if you can get your head wrapped around it, um, you can see the playing field a lot better than, for example, just, you know, sitting at home trying to make phone calls to people who you know in the region but probably can't talk to you. Can you offer a couple of specific examples of things you've seen that you think are inadequately reflected in the media here? I mean, I, I can think of one example of what you were talking about, which was the the uh, strike on the parking lot of the El Ali uh, hospital, which was, you know, immediately, you know, broadcast as a, an, a headline famously in the New York Times said it was an Israeli strike, turns out to have been a failed Hamas missile that didn't hit the hospital, but hit the parking lot. Um, but, you know, can you, are there things that you've seen that I think uh, you feel have been either inadequately or inappropriately treated here in the media? Sure. Well, I mean, in 2021, and I talk about this in, in the book, um, there was an Israeli airstrike on a, I think it was a nine-story building that happened to also have some media offices in there. I think the AP building, or it was the AP offices were in that building as well as a handful of yeah, others. AP was in there, yeah. Right. And the Israelis warned that they were going to strike that building. And the reason why they did was because Hamas was operating an office inside that building, too. And they were trying to jam the Iron Dome missile defense system. Um, when the Israelis struck the building, um, they got absolutely hammered by every media outlet in America. They were hammered by uh, uh, by the um 
by the White House. It was just a free-for-all. It was a pile-on where the Israelis were just excoriated for having attacked the media. Um, and then eventually the news came out that this was actually a place where Hamas had offices. And then the media found themselves in this very awkward position where they had to explain how it was that they that these people consider themselves to be investigative reporters and yet couldn't quite figure out that Hamas was operating in the same building that they were. That's just one example. Um, during this most recent round of conflict, you know, the other hospital that's come into the uh, spotlight is the Al-Shifa hospital, which the Israelis identified early on as the command center for Hamas military operations in the Gaza Strip. This is, by the way, something that I have known since 2006. And the reason why I know it is because the Washington Post, AP, Human Rights Watch, and a handful of other outlets, media and NGOs, have reported on it themselves. And yet, the media was uh, constantly throwing shade on the Israeli assertion that there was a significant infrastructure that lay beneath the hospital. And they were blaming the Israelis for attacking medical buildings where there were doctors and civilians and patients and the like. Um, this, you know, I got to say, this conflict always brings out the worst in a lot of people. I'm sure I'm not alone in this assessment. We see people who are normally mild-mannered uh, just coming out just with dripping with anger and fury about what they perceive are crimes on one side or the other, and it happens on both sides. Um, and I would argue that the media falls prey to this as well, that the media will find itself becoming part of the melee as opposed to being that kind of dispassionate observer that we would expect from uh, you know, from, from our media outlets, from our reporters. We just don't see it. They seem to want to believe one side or the other. And um, it's led to a lot of mistakes. It's, a, it's, it's led to a lot of erroneous coverage. Um, it's led to a lot of distrust on the part of the Israelis. They don't want to share a lot of information now uh, with, uh, with some of their media. Um, and then, of course, there are all the questions that are swirling within the sort of right side of the spectrum about how legacy media leans left, you know, reflexively and that they're just inclined to buy into a narrative that would, uh, you know, sort of fly in the face of reality as we know it. And so it's actually exacerbating the lack of trust that some Americans already have in the media, which is highly problematic. There needs to be a serious overhaul. Part of it, I'll just I'll, I maybe end here, but part of it has to do with the fact that very few of the reporters that I've watched in this region know the language, know the culture, know the history. They are often airdropped in when the conflict begins and they want to know more than they do. They try to convey more than they know. Um, and they work it under certain assumptions, which just should not be the case. And so it's a it's a frustrating thing to watch, but I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. John, I want to pick up on uh, some things you were talking about uh, with regard to El Shifa. You were talking about the hospital serving as a command center, and of course, one of the uh, big stories in the media was, well, you know, will the Israelis find these tunnels that they've been claiming exist under the hospital? Of course, they have found them and they have documented that now. They've flown drones through some of the tunnels um, and they've begun to um, 
you know, blow up and collapse uh, some of the tunnels, pour uh, foam into smoke and foam into them, etc. But the tunnels are a very interesting story, and they're kind of, I guess, two two dimensions to it that I would love to hear you comment on. One is that the tunnels turn out, as I understand it from uh, some of the Israelis I've talked to who are knowledgeable about this, that a tunnel network they are discovering in this go-round turns out to be significantly larger and more complex and uh, more sophisticated than even the Israelis had imagined, and deeper than even the Israelis uh, had had imagined. You know, some some of the Hamas leaders have talked about, you know, the uh, the tunnel network, which is frequently referred to as the Gaza Metro. I think in your book, you talk about it being, uh, if it's not in your book, I read it somewhere else, that it's uh, in fact larger than the London underground in terms of mileage. I think I've seen it, you know, Hamas leader is quoted as saying that it's like 300 kilometers long. It seems to have turned out to be even much bigger than that. Um, you know, maybe as much as 500 miles worth of of tunneling underneath, which is really a, kind of astonishing thing. That's one element. Um, and so that allows, of course, Hamas fighters to, you know, uh, move around unobserved by uh, Israeli uh, over flights uh, and, uh, you know, drone surveillance of, of uh, Gaza. It also, of course, allows them to hide hostages and, and you know, to, uh, you know, build um, rocket factories that are hidden from view, etc., rocket and missile factories. There's another element, of course, which is the tunneling from Gaza into Sinai, which allows Hamas uh, to import uh, the materials and the weapons, whole weapon systems uh, from Iran, which is where we started this conversation, that they've used to rain down, um, you know, death and destruction on Israel. And, you know, even today, despite the, uh, you know, Israeli intense military operations in the last seven weeks, Hamas continues to fire, you know, rockets into, uh, into Israel. I was just before we got on to record this, I was with someone who was in Israel actually on October 7th and who has the uh, the early warning app that Israelis have on their phone that allows them to, you know, to get alerted when there's incoming from Gaza. And he was, while we were talking, was getting you know, the signal for, for incoming. And this is after seven weeks of operation. So obviously a deep magazine of, of rockets and missiles has been accumulated by Hamas through these tunnels. Now, the, the Israelis... You know, from reading your book, I, I got the impression that the Israelis thought they had destroyed a lot of that infrastructure in previous go-rounds and that the Egyptians, of course, had an interest in doing this as well. But apparently that also turns out to have been, you know, a, a bigger uh, sort of operation and a more ramified set of tunnels than even the Israelis, I think, had originally anticipated. Do you want to talk a little bit about the tunnels? Yeah, the, the tunnels... Um you know, have become a major problem for the Israelis. I think we first saw it in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, I mean, actually, it was the tunnels were used to kidnap Gilad Shalit, who we talked about, who was taken in 2006. Um, but we began to see a much uh, a sort of a spike, if you will, in, in the, the amount of tunneling that was going on. Um, really in response to a couple of things. Number one, the Israelis had built a, uh, a fairly effective fence. It was effective until 10-7. 
um, keeping Gazans out of Israel. They, they had built this fence uh, in response to the Intifada of 2000 to 2005, the, uh, the Palestinian second uprising against Israel that included a lot more deadly tactics uh, like suicide bombing. So the Israelis closed off access uh, to the country above ground. After that stopped the suicide bombings, then we started to see rockets, right? And so the Israelis developed Iron Dome, this incredible uh, missile defense system that's been 90 or 95% effective against Hamas rockets. Um, and then when that was uh, baked into Hamas's calculations, they began building uh, commando tunnels uh, to try to infiltrate Israel. And the Israelis have done a decent job, I think, of trying to close those up. Um, but where they can't stop those tunnels is inside the Gaza Strip itself. And so in 2021, the Israelis did talk about that metro system. It was the first time they they were kind of openly talking about it with its nickname, talking about how many kilometers. My understanding, Eric, we're I think you know we're still all over the place in terms of official numbers. I've heard 600 kilometers or 450 miles, uh, give or take. Um, of this tunnel system. But what's really amazing about it is the varying levels of depth with these tunnels. There is the sort of upper, upper level, which are 10 meters or so beneath the ground. And that's really for um, fighters to be able to go from one place to another um, and possibly to be able to grab Israeli soldiers if they're fighting on the ground and then pull them into the tunnels. Um, the next level down is where they hold the rockets that they bring up to fire. And then the level below that is the leadership level where we see command centers and the like. It's complex. It's not easy to build. It's even harder to maintain because the, the lower down they are, the harder it is to pump air and electricity into these tunnels. And so this has been actually part of the debate that we've seen gone on uh, between Hamas and Israel and the international community, right? Hamas keeps saying, well, the only way we're going to agree to a ceasefire is if we get more humanitarian assistance. And when we talk about humanitarian assistance, we want more fuel. And the Israelis say no. And then, you know, the international community says, look at you, you're depriving, you know, the people of Gaza. And the Israelis are saying, no, 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 wait a minute. We're talking about the fuel that is going to allow Hamas to operate in these tunnels more effectively against us on the battlefield. And so this explains a lot of what's been going on, the back and forth in this, you know, debate, let's call it, or the negotiation that's been going on. By the way, I'll also note that I heard from an Israeli source the other day that um, the Israelis are going around destroying solar panels right now in the Gaza Strip because the solar panels are keeping the electricity and air pumping into these tunnels that that Hamas knew that this day would come and that the fuel would be cut off. And so this is what they did instead. So um, really an interesting kind of dynamic there in terms of the combat tunnels. And then the other set of tunnels that you mentioned is no less important. That is, of course, the tunnels connecting the Sinai Peninsula to the Gaza Strip. This is all happening beneath the Rafah crossing where the official transfer of humanitarian goods has been taking place. What we've learned, though, is that the uh, security has been incredibly lax with the trucks going in and out of Rafah. And so Rafah has actually been the source for a lot of the replenishing of those rockets 
uh, or the explosive materials or the cylinders that are used either parts or in whole. Um, and then there's what happens underground. And this is something, you know, the Egyptians back in 2013, when Abdel Fattah Sisi came to power in the coup or revolution or the coup-volution or whatever we want to call it, um, he began to destroy those tunnels um, with some enthusiasm because he saw Hamas as part of the Muslim Brotherhood network, which of course they are. Um, but over time, as I understand it, as the Egyptian economy is cratered, Sisi has allowed for the Sinai Bedouin to return to operating these tunnels because it is lucrative for all. But what that's done is it's pushed the region to the brink of a regional war. Um, I'm not blaming all of this on the Egyptians, but I have gotten the distinct sense from talking to people around the region that there will need to be a revision of the security contracts that govern uh, what takes place above and below the ground at Rafah. The tunnels, I think, are also an interesting or important key uh, to understand some of what the Israelis are doing in their uh, military operations. You know, one of the things that's been striking uh, about uh, the military operations is the number of airstrikes and the number of munitions that the Israelis have dropped, I mean, dwarfing in terms of scale what we did in our counter-ISIL campaign, for instance, in urban warfare against Mosul, and uh, when we reduced the ISIL capital in Syria, Raqqa, um, I mean, we did not have nearly this many sorties, not nearly this many individual missiles and bombs dropped. Do you want to talk about why you think um, the Israelis have been so heavy on the munitions? Because it is related to this whole uh, issue of tunneling. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, when you hear Israel's detractors talking about this, primarily in the American media and certainly on Al Jazeera, I think there's an attempt to depict the Israelis as, you know, out for blood, um, you know, carpet bombing, maximum damage, you know, that kind of thing. My understanding is that the Israelis are still being, look, they're, they're maybe not dropping as many knock-knock bombs before they destroy buildings. But they're dropping leaflets and they're letting people know that they need to get out of the field of fight. And they're doing, I think, a lot of what they have done in the past, um, but they're dropping a lot more ordnance. Um, the reason for that, at least in part, is because they are trying to destroy the tunnels. And in order to destroy the tunnels, you've got to get 10 meters beneath the ground, at least sometimes more. I've actually heard that in some cases, the Israelis have had to drop two or three or four bombs in the same exact spot in order to get to the source of the tunnel that they're trying to hit. And so we have seen, I think, a lot more um, bombs dropped with the goal of destroying that military infrastructure. Um, of course, that doesn't help anyone when you think about the kind of trauma that the Gazan people are uh, contending with, the nonstop noise and obliteration of, uh, of infrastructure, it is, you know, I don't want to belittle what Gazans are going through, but I don't get the sense that everything that Israel's doing is, you know, taking out one building after another. I think they are still trying to be targeted. It's just not an easy terrain to work with. I think it may be worth, you know, remembering here that Gaza is about the size of Washington, D.C., 
in its total area. Um, but it's got about, I think, four times as many people living there. It's 2.2 million people. Um, you know, we're, I think we're roughly a half million in, in DC, you know, before everybody starts coming in for rush hour every day. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's is not easy for the Israelis to operate in this crowded environment. I think they've done as best as probably one could, but I do find it actually really amazing that, you know, when, you know, in, in today's day and age, when war is started, especially in a way that this war was started on October 7th with just total brutality. Um, it was clearly an act of war on the part of Hamas. They started the war. And then when the war starts up, you know, immediately we start hearing calls for a cessation to violence. We start hearing about war crimes. We start hearing about international criminal court. There is something very odd about the way in which the public now views hostilities. We never had rules like this before where people walked in feeling thoroughly constrained because they know that there's going to be video, that there's going to be documentation, that they're going to be, you know, before even anything starts, you know, they go right to the ICC. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, the Israelis, I think, are very used to this. They operate often in this environment. And so far, I think they've navigated it okay. I think this one will be more of a challenge, given the amount of ordinance that you've talked about, uh, Eric, that it is a large amount and that there is a large amount of destruction. And that will, of course, um, prompt the Israelis to have to answer different kinds of questions this time around. Of course, one of the um, you know great tragedies for the Gazans is that you know as they go as the Israelis as the IDF goes after this tunnel infrastructure. Of course, a lot of it is underneath mosques, underneath schools, underneath uh, apartment buildings, and so uh, the reconstruction uh, of Gaza is going to be an immense uh, task after this this all ends. And as you were saying, the Gazans are you know suffering enormously under all of this. It. You know, we talked. You were talking about the knock-knock bombs. These are dummy bombs that uh, Israelis would uh, typically, in previous uh, go-rounds with uh, Hamas in Gaza, drop on the roofs of buildings to let the inhabitants know that it was really time to get out, that they were about to strike. In this instance, just to put a scale on it a little bit, as I understand it, the Israelis have dropped over a million and a half leaflets. I think it's well over now four million text messages that have been sent to the inhabitants of buildings, uh, as well as uh, a similar number, four or five million of mobile phone calls made by Arabic speaking IDF officers to tell people, you know, get out because we're about to, you know, uh, you know, hit this, hit this building. So, uh, you know, obviously there's been a lot of collateral damage. It's important to point out that the laws of armed conflict apply to both sides. And it is a war crime to put military uh, materiel and infrastructure in schools, in hospitals, and amongst civilians. So, uh, you know, the the burden here, um, as you were saying, I think, Jonathan, is, you know, Hamas started the war and they are fighting it in a way that violates the law of armed conflict. We see a lot of uh, human shields, um, right? The, the deliberate uh, firing of rockets, or storing of rockets, uh, or fighting, you know, in densely populated areas, um, you know, they have been waiting 
for the Israelis. They want the Israelis to wage that war. And, and then they often parade around their dead in ways that uh, I think are, are designed to try to sway public opinion. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's, it's obviously frustrating for the Israelis, but I've got to imagine this cannot be easy for the Gazan people. We've seen actually a few uh, examples of uh, people coming out, they're being interviewed, and they actually start to take aim at the Iranians or the Turks or the Qataris or at Hamas itself. Um, as the uh, Hamas rule is weakened, you get a sense that the Gazan people are sort of at least finally feeling a bit more comfortable to share what's, uh, you know, what's been on their mind maybe for the last uh, 16 years. But one last thing I'll just say on this is that um, Kareem Khan, the, uh, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, just paid a visit to Israel. Um, he actually went down to southern Gaza to take a look at the damage uh, that was done on 10-7. He's gone to Ramallah to talk to Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority. I don't know if he'll go into the Gaza Strip or not, you know, probably out of safety concerns. Um, but the ICC prosecutor is there and he's basically been telling the Israelis, look, you know, work with me on this, which I think we've never really seen before, where an ICC prosecutor is actually on the scene saying, look, I like this. I don't like this. I mean, I, I can't remember a war where I've seen something yeah. that really feels sui generis to me. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I wasn't aware of that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, um, you, you mentioned that. Um, you know, look, urban warfare is the toughest kind of warfare uh, there is. And, and that's when you're fighting above ground. You know, when you're now also adding this you know, subterranean dimension of this, it, uh, the degree of difficulty is just enormous. It's not a military problem as a former senior defense official it's not a military problem that i you know envy my israeli colleagues for having to to deal with we're kind of beginning to run low on time uh john i wanted to get to you know two final questions if i might uh, with you one is 107 was obviously a, a massive intelligence failure ronan bergman um, a very well connected israeli journalist had a big uh, piece in the new york times about Unit uh, 8200, which is monitoring Gaza, um, it, it appears, at least from some of the reporting, that there clearly was intelligence about Hamas planning an operation like the one that they launched, uh, and some intel uh, analysts trying to get their superiors to take it seriously, and it was um, apparently disregarded. Could you comment a little bit on the intelligence failure? I mean, I, obviously, it's early days. Uh, you know, a lot's going to come out, you know, down the road. One thing we know about the Israelis is that there will be a commission to investigate this. They've done it after every previous uh, intel failure, whether it was the Agronaut Commission after the 1973 war or after the Sabra and Chitila massacre in 1982 or after the Lebanon war in 2006. I mean, they always uh, do a deep dive into what you know, what went wrong and, and why. And, and, uh, and there is a lot of accountability heads roll actually in Israel. Can't always be said about, you know, the United States. Uh, what's your take though, on the failure on, uh, on October 7th? Sure. I mean, look, first of all, I do think that heads are going to roll. Um, I think it's a foregone conclusion that the head of the Mossad, the head of the Shin Bet, the head of military intelligence, um, I, the, uh, um, the, uh, the, uh, the chief of the army is going to go. I think they're all going to go. 
um, I think Benjamin Netanyahu is still trying to bargain with the Israeli people and maybe with himself about his longevity in politics, but I think he's likely going to have to face the music too. The reports that have come out about, you know, Egyptian warnings or Unit 8200 warnings, that's their that's their NSA equivalent, by the way, their cyber unit. Um, there have been a lot of reports suggesting that Israel had information. The question is, was that information credible? Um, you know, was it actionable? Did it come from sources that Israelis trusted? I haven't seen any good intel on that. I do know that a lot of the military observers that watch screens all day, there's a whole, uh, there's been a lot of talk about those in the Israeli media uh, over the last day or so. They're typically female officers that are watching their screens and tracking this, that if they apparently went to their superiors who then promptly ignored their warnings and they are frustrated. Fair enough. Um, but I, I can tell you that I had a different experience uh, about a week before 10-7 that has stuck with me for the last you know two months. And um, I spoke to a senior Israeli official. I had to testify before Congress about things that were going on in the West Bank. It's the Palestinian Authority. Um, you know, there was a hearing that was called um, by House members on the practice known as pay for slay. I'm sure you're familiar with this is where the Palestinian Authority has been paying the salaries or paying for the lifestyles of um, the families of those convicted of terror attacks. Um, and in other words, it's sort of a social security for, suicide bombers and the like. Yes, it's social security for people that have carried out terrorism against Israel. Um, and Congress has wanted to cut that off. It's been a, a you know a bee in Congress's bonnet for quite some time. So I called a a, a guy that I in, knew. In fact, there's pending there's there's pending legislation, the Taylor Force Act, to in, in fact uh, deal precisely with this. Correct. Correct. Um, Anyway, so I, I called an Israeli official who I'd been in contact with a couple of times over the years, knew that he worked on the Palestinian file. And, and we talked about, you know, all of this stuff in the West Bank for, I don't know, a good half hour. And then uh, I said, look, I'm going to let you jump. But, you know, before I do, could you just give me a sense of what's going on in Gaza? Because I haven't heard you say anything about Gaza. And he said, look, uh, we think Gaza is going to be quiet for months to come. We believe that Yahya Sinwar, the head of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, is a pragmatist. We believe that he's somebody that we can do business with. We believe that he wants to give more products and, and more opportunities to the people of Gaza, and that we understand that he's trying to promote violence in the West Bank, because that's a territory that he would like to conquer. But we think that Gaza is going to be quiet. And I heard that a week before. And this was a senior Israeli official. And so there was, I think, a narrative, or as the Israelis would call it, a concepcia, that's the word they use, a sort of security concept that had really just thoroughly seeped into the security establishment. It was dead wrong. It was based not on intelligence, but I think on wishful thinking. And so when the Unit 8200 um, you know, junior folks flagged this to their officials. The officials had already bought in to that concept. And that is why I think they rejected what they heard. And this is just, I think, a warning to all of us about 
herd-based intelligence. We have to constantly question our assumptions, constantly question what we're seeing because there are always people on the other side engaging in counterintelligence, engaging in subterfuge, trying to mask their true intentions. And I think the Israelis truly lost sight of that and um, they paid a hefty, hefty price for it. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So that, that'll that be it for this episode of Shielded Republic. I'm very grateful to John Chanzer for joining us. The book is Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. If you want to understand the current conflict, I can't think of a better read to get you up to speed on what came before. Uh, and we'll be back to this topic, I'm afraid, uh, in the weeks ahead as this conflict goes on. I want to thank all our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a, a rating on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>